Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. All right, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3. Would you go to the Lord with me in prayer as we prepare our hearts? Lord, once again, we do come before you thankful for your word and thankful that we can be here, here at Calvary Chapel, South Bay, here in L.A., for such a time as this. And Lord, we want to honor you by being a people of your word. And I ask, Lord, that you would strengthen our hands. In Jesus' name. Amen. Paul is writing a letter to, well, one of his favorite churches, if he had a favorite. But while he's writing this letter, he is in prison. Now, amazing to me, when I've received letters from people in prison, it's usually a little bit of moan, a little bit of whine, a little bit of complain, and a little bit of send me this or send me that. Not Paul. He wrote a letter to encourage them. He wrote a letter to be encouraged. It goes both ways. In fact, Pastor Zach and I left Sunday night for Peru. We landed this morning coming back after traveling about nine hours to Lima, then another three hours to Cajamarca, then three hours, oh, an hour by plane to Cajamarca, and then three hours up a mountain and around to Cajabamba to visit some of our missionaries. And it was amazing. We went to encourage them. We just went to say, we're with you. We love you. Calvary Chapel, South Bay, we want to see God do great things in you. But it was amazing to me where I went to go encourage them. Guess what? They got me. They encouraged my socks off. You see, encouragement goes both ways. But Paul also writes this letter kind of like a thank you letter. He wants to thank them for the gift that was given. And thank you letters are spiritual. That's what Paul's doing in the book of Philippians. But there's a problem with this church. And Paul wants to help them resolve this problem. But before he addresses the problem, he takes chapters 1, chapters 2, chapter 3 to prepare them. And in chapter 2, he actually uses the example of Jesus as our standard bearer to faith. And he wants them to see how Jesus handled his greatest challenge, the cross. So he studied that he handled it like a humble servant. He handled it in a way that he was sacrificially obedient. He did what God asked him to do, and that glorified God, and that was the only thing that Jesus was concerned about. Now, he knows human nature, the Apostle Paul, and sometimes I'm counseling with people, and they'll say to me, well, I'm not Jesus. You can't expect me to be Jesus. Well, I'm not God. Have you ever heard that before when you're challenging your kids to wash the dishes? Well, what do you expect me to be perfect? I'm not Jesus. No one's ever heard that before. So what Paul does is he gives two human examples, two model citizens of heaven. And these two guys are going to express the truth. You can be like Jesus because Timothy, he was a humble servant. 
He did whatever the Lord called him to do. He went wherever the Lord called him to go. Remember, Timothy was the one that got circumcised his first day into ministry, his first mission trip. Paul got beat up. If it was me, I probably would have been out of there, but not Timothy. No, Timothy was a humble servant. Then there was Epaphroditus who was sacrificially obedient. And if you remember, he almost died. He didn't regard his life as his own. He was willing to give his life to fulfill the call. But that's not the only reason that Paul would use Epaphroditus. He would use his life to begin to introduce or to further the core of why he wrote this letter to the Philippians in the midst of this problem. Take a look, just maybe look up a couple of verses to Philippians chapter 2, verse 28. Therefore, I sent him, speaking of Epaphroditus, the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. I emphasize the words rejoice. I emphasize the word gladness. It's to this point and to this word Paul has already used six times in this letter. I want you to see it with me, and maybe you'll underline it. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, look with me, if you would, at verse 18. Philippians 1, 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and will rejoice. Paul was being mocked and made fun of, but Christ was being preached and Christ's name was getting out. So he said, I'll rejoice. Take a look at chapter 1. I'm going to pick it up in verse 26. That your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. He wanted to rejoice at the reunion. Take a look at Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to pick it up there in verse 16. Philippians chapter 2 verse 16. He says this. Holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul's trying to get a point across. And when a word is repeated this many times in one letter, you begin to understand the context of what Paul is trying to get across. Because Paul's a great teacher. He's a gifted teacher. And much like I will use a review in the sense of repetition, repetition and review is one of the best tools in the toolbox of a teacher. You do one plus one on Monday. You do one plus one on Tuesday to teach one plus two. Then on Wednesday, you do one plus one, one plus two, and add one plus three. It's just what a good teacher chooses to do. Now, you also begin to see that the church that Paul loved, and quite possibly the reason why he's telling to them to rejoice, is they're discouraged. They're discouraged about something, and that something is about to be revealed in chapter 3. Now, have any of you ever been discouraged? Okay. One, yes. The other of you are just staring at me. 
Okay, so you don't need to raise your hand. We, can, we don't have to do it today, okay? I'm going to look at this side, though, okay? <laughs> have any of you ever been discouraged? Yes. Oh, we've got the Pentecostal side over here. You guys are on your own tonight. So, Philippians chapter 3. The church is discouraged. Let me tell you why they're discouraged. It's going to be revealed in chapter 3. Legalism has hit the church. No longer is it a relationship that you have with Jesus. It's a religion. Let me tell you something about legalism. The Christ and people. It always leads to discouragement because you can't live up to it. You can't do this. You can't do that. You got to do this. You got to do that. This is what makes you a great Christian. If you do all of these things, it's impossible to live up. It always leads to discouragement. And I believe chapter 3 is revealing quite possibly a sanctified guess, the issue that was happening between the two ladies. Maybe one of them wore a skirt one day and the other one wore jeans. And the one in the skirt said, I can't believe you wore jeans to church. And the one in the jeans said, I can't believe you wore that color. You can't wear pink to church. You wear black and gray to church because Christians are to be miserable. (laughs) When my grandfather passed away, my mom bought my grandmother a dress. We grew up in a very traditional church, very legalistic traditional church. The dress was a turtleneck, and it went to her arms, and it flowed down below her ankles. When my grandmother pulled it out, she looked at my mother and said, Pam, let me put my Bahamian accent on for just a minute. Pam, you want me to walk down the aisle and look like a floozy going into the church? If I wear this, these women are going to make fun of me the whole day. And it's amazing to me, growing up in legalism, the rules and regulations that people put on people. And I'm convinced that quite possibly legalism had broken into the church. And these ladies are arguing over some legalistic principle. I'll never forget. A woman walked into Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. She was scantily clad at best. Scantily clad. I won't give you the visual for the sake of not causing anyone to stumble. And there was a man, one of the leaders in the church, who took his coat off and was about to cover the woman with his coat. A pastor walked up to the man, seeing what was about to happen, stopped the man from covering the woman. We can't let this woman go into church like this. I mean, people are, she's going to be a distraction. People are going to, well, come to find out, she had just gotten off shift at solid gold. She had been broken. It's a joint that you go to to watch women dance. And she had been broken in spirit. And the only thing she knew was to come to church. Can you imagine if that man would have fulfilled his mission and covered her? And he looked, the leader looked at the man that was about to cover and said to her, it's not shame on her, it's shame on us. 
We didn't go to her, so God brought her to us, and now we're going to cover her up, and we're going to say, clean up before you come to Christ. I learned a very powerful lesson as I overheard that. Because we don't know where anyone is in their faith. We don't know who's walking into our doors. We don't know if God has brought them in. And if we put on them, clean up before you come, then you're missing the whole point of Christ who reached out his hand to a woman that was accused of adultery. And I fear that the church has a clean-up mentality instead of a grace-filled mentality. And I wonder if this is what the ladies were arguing about. So Paul is using his life. Look, I'm in jail. I'm rejoicing. I'm writing you an encouraging note. He uses Christ. He was a humble servant, sacrificially obedient, and now he's using Epaphroditus. I'm sending to him to you so you can rejoice. He's trying to get a point across. See, this word rejoice, it's a prescription to treat any problem that we may have in life. I want everyone to say rejoice. rejoice. Great. Some of you didn't say it the way I was hoping that you would. Rejoice. In fact, this word, this word for those in relationship with Jesus will always rejoice despite life. Despite life. Take a look at Philippians chapter 3, now verse 1. Finally, I'll stop there for just a minute. He's a classic preacher. He's got two more chapters left, and he says, finally. He's not even close to finish. He's just given the audience hope that he's done. I will probably do this several times tonight. Okay? It is scriptural for me to do it. Finally. Now, this word, don't laugh too hard. (laughs) This word, it actually has a different meaning than I'm coming to a conclusion. So I use it the same way. I just try to give you hope through the course of our message. It actually means henceforth. In other words, now that I've set the stage, rejoice, rejoice, be glad, rejoice, rejoice, be glad. Now that I've set the stage, I want to give you the point. And he says, finally, my brethren. He's writing to those that are in relationship with Jesus, real relationship. This church was thriving. Paul knows that, so he wants to, he wants to solve this problem. Now, years ago, we used to call each other brother and sister. Hey, brother Chet. Hey, sister Sally. Hey, brother Johnny. We used to do that all the time. But then something happened in the church. All of a sudden, my name is Pastor Chet. Now, Pastor Chet, imagine if I started calling you by your gift. Imagine if I walked up to you and said, Servant Sally, how are you? What if I walked up to you and said, Oh, merciful Mary, God bless you. What if I started saying, Oh, Leader John, God bless you. And I started putting your gift as a title. Pastor is just simply the gift. That's why early in the church age, we called each other brother, my brethren. We call each other sister because we're all level at the foot of the cross. All I'm doing is offering my gift to the body in the same way those precious Sunday school workers are offering their gift of helps. They help parents. That's what they do. They give you a break and they are helping you. Amen? Amen. Only the parents. We got a clapper. You got a child in there. You see, he's writing to his brethren. And what he's going to do is describe what a real relationship with Christ is going to look like. And he's going to describe what a real relationship doesn't look like. And it definitely is not legalistic. And see, Paul, 
Paul refers to the church's family. He calls Timothy a true son in the Lord because that's what Jesus did. It's what Jesus taught us. Do you remember when the disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray? Do you remember where the first two words were? Our, listen to the pronoun, our father. The pronoun defines the way that God sees the church. He sees us as family. He's the father. We're the kids. Our father. Let me tell you something about families. Families have issues. Amen? Family, I love, I love when like, you, the, like the little house in the prairie family comes walking. Oh, we don't have any issues. I just love seeing you driving home in the minivan. Like, I just like to watch the whole process. Families have issues, correct? And what Paul is going to do is help solve this problem and this issue because he's a father in the faith and he sees himself with this church as a father in the faith. And he's going to give some of the most practical advice to change their perspective on this problem. Take a look. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. That phrase will resolve every problem in your life. Rejoice in the Lord. There's our prescription to resolve any problem that you may face in life. Now, let me explain. This word rejoice, it's the word Cairo. It means to be glad. It's written over 10 times in this letter because the Holy Spirit is trying to get a message across about what a citizen of heaven should look like. Now, sometimes you might be in a problem. And you might say, well, Chet, it's hard to be glad. It's hard to rejoice when you're in a problem. If that's your case, you might be confusing happiness, which is situational, with joy, which is internal. You might be confusing the two. You see, joy doesn't depend on a circumstance like happiness does. In fact, it's very preposition, rejoice, listen to it, in the Lord defines its source. Joy comes from the Lord. And let me tell you something about the Lord. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So on the cross, it's written of him who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He is the person, the God of joy. I want you to see something else about this phrase. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. This is a direction. It is not a suggestion. You don't get to pray about it. You don't get to go, okay, Lord, should I rejoice in this? Listen to it. Therefore, or finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. It's a direction. And there are two reasons I believe why God is through his Holy Spirit is giving the church the direction to rejoice in the Lord because this prescription has a product And if you choose to follow the prescription of rejoicing in the Lord in the midst of life's circumstance, you're going to see two things emerge out of you. The first, would you go with me to 1 Peter chapter 3? 1 Peter chapter 3, it's our first area of scripture that I asked you to turn to. 1 Peter chapter 3. Excuse me. 1 Peter chapter 1, I said, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, 
who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. Rejoice in your salvation. Though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, Though now you do not see him, you uh, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the faith, the salvation of your souls. Inexpressible joy. That is a product from following the prescription of rejoice in the Lord. Peter's not telling them to rejoice in their trial as maybe you've heard in the past. He's telling them to rejoice in their salvation, not the trial, because there's something about your salvation that is true. Jesus described it. Would you take a look on the screen? It's going to be there, John chapter 16. The disciples are worried. Jesus has told them that he's going to die. Now, let me tell you what that means for a disciple. I've lost my job. Everybody's going to make fun of me. They're going to say that I'm a liar. They're going to look at me and say... Uh, kill him because he was with them? This is why Peter denied him. Take a look at what Jesus said. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament. Ooh. Listen to God's will for their life. You will weep. You will lament. This is my will for you. Have any of you ever been there? But the world will rejoice. Have you ever felt that way? It's David going, why do the wicked prosper? And you're looking at your life, living for God, and you're looking at everybody else, and they're not living for God, but they got all the money, they got all the possessions, they got everything they can have. Why do they get to prosper? Listen to what he says. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow, here's the promise, here's God's will, will be turned into joy. A woman, when she's in labor, has sorrow. Jesus gives a great illustration. Has because her hour has come, but as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, key point. Therefore, you now have sorrow. He says, I get it. I know you're sorrowful. But I'm going to see you again, or I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. Key phrase. And your joy no one will take from you. They can take everything from you. They can take your home, your possessions. They can tax you to the utmost degree. And everything you have can be taken from you, but the one thing that cannot be taken from you from saints now to all the way at the beginning of the, of the church is your salvation. In that alone, we can rejoice in the Lord. And if we can rejoice in the Lord, our salvation should give us an inexpressible joy. I want you to stop for just a moment and think about your salvation. Think about when God pulled you from darkness and into light. Think about how different your life is from when before you came to Christ. Think about how your marriage was going to be destroyed. Think about how your life was coming to an end. And all of a sudden, Jesus rips you out of that darkness and brings you into light. And now here you are on a Thursday night, either at home, raising your hands to Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord. 
And I believe there's a story with Jesus that illustrates this point so emphatically. You know the story. Jesus is walking on the road and he comes in contact with 10 lepers in Luke chapter 17. He heals all 10 of them. One of them, seeing that his life is saved, that he has no longer leprosy. The other nine, I don't know, maybe they go to the girlfriend, go back to their wife. I'm not sure where they went. But the one, he turned around and he went to Jesus. Look, at, uh, you'll see it on the screen. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned with a loud voice glorifying God. And he fell down in his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. He was a Samaritan. And I actually want to read to you, I'm going to read a little bit more of the story in Luke chapter 17 for you. I'm going to just take a second to go there. Maybe you'll write it in your notes. Luke chapter 17, I just want you to hear how Jesus responds. Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. He says, you're a believer. I can perceive in your heart you came back to give glory to God and the men. Do you think he went back and he was like, hey, I just want to tell you thank you, Jesus. (laughs) God bless you. I'm really glad I'm healed of leprosy. Hallelujah. Do you think it's how he came back? Are you kidding me? Ah! I don't have leprosy. Jesus, thank you. I mean, imagine the inexpressible joy. This man who was ostracized from community, he had been saved. He was saved. And he glorified God in his salvation. Now, stop for a moment and think of your own salvation. Think of the way that you respond to Jesus in worship with your salvation. You see, when we stop and think of our salvation, there's this inexpressible joy like the leprous man. And the Bible says he glorified God. You see, if you choose to live in the inexpressible joy, no matter the situation, to rejoice in the Lord, you are glorifying God. You'll become the humble servant. You'll become sacrificially obedient. Because just like the leper, you will glorify God because you're choosing to rejoice in the Lord. Inexpressible joy is a product of making a decision to rejoice in the Lord. Your salvation can never be taken from you. But there's a second product. Turn with me just a couple of pages, if you're in Philippians, to Philippians chapter 4. I want you to see this in verse 4. Just go over a couple pages, Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I'll say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men, the Lord's at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You see, there's a second product of choosing to follow the direction of rejoicing in the Lord, and that is a peace that passes understanding. You see, following the direction to rejoice in the Lord, you're going to have an inexpressible joy. People aren't going to understand it, but choosing to follow direction to rejoice in the Lord, you're also going to have a peace that passes understanding. And I love Paul. In verse 4, he says says this in verse 4, Let your gentleness be known to all men. Excuse me, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. 
He repeats himself and he doesn't care. This is like number 10, number 11. He's just continuing to get the point across. Rejoice in the Lord. Follow that direction. And look what he says. Go back with me to Philippians chapter 3. So much so is he not opposed to re-communicating this over and over again. He says, for me to write the same things to you, Philippians chapter 3 verse 1, is not tedious, but for you it is safe. It's not tedious. This word tedious, it means to slow me down, to burden me, to make me tardy. And what he's saying is this. Me repeating this over and over again is not slowing me down. It's actually proving my point. And I'm going to say it over and over and over and over and over again because he knows human nature. We're a little hard-headed, aren't we? We're a little hard-headed. Wives, don't look at your husbands. We're a little hard-headed. And he repeats it over and over and over again because he's discipling them. And I believe this word repeated over and over again is our opportunity to see what entails discipleship. We've got to be patient with people. They may not be where you're at, but you can take them there. We've got to be patient with people. They may not understand what you're trying to get across with John 3.16, but you can take them there. And maybe you have to repeat it over and over and over again because we could be hard-headed ourselves. And the Lord, he was with his disciples. Do you remember with his disciples? He looked at Simon and said, you are Simon. I know what I'm getting, but you shall be Cephas. He called them faithless. He he said to them, oh, this perverse generation. He gave them some real truths, and he even said to them, how long will I bear with you? Now, every time a Jewish person in the first century world would make a statement, I mean a question, they're actually making a statement. And what they're saying is, I will bear with you. In fact, Jesus, the Bible says in John 13, he loved them to the end. He bared with them because love bears all things. And he also said, not only is it not tedious, it's also safe for your sake. And let me tell you something. Rejoice in the Lord in the direction of rejoice in the Lord is safe for our sake. And that word safe, it means firm, sure, steadfast, immovable. And Paul is giving a direction in the word of God by the Holy Spirit. Rejoice in the, in, in the Lord. And if we learn this word and we purpose to live this word in our life, let me tell you what's going to happen. The house that you're building is not going to fall down when the rains hit it. And you're going to come out and see your neighbor who did not rejoice in the Lord, did not follow direction of Scripture, and their house was built on sand, and that house is going to go down. But when you come out of your house and you see the storm has passed, a Cat 5 hurricane, which many of us face in our life, and your house is standing, then you'll know. Rejoice in the Lord. The direction of Scripture is what held you through that time. Look with me if you would, because I want to understand, how can I have this peace that that passes understanding? Well, Paul, he helps us understand it. Go back with me to Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to pick it up. He says in verse 4 again, rejoice in the Lord always. He gives a very practical measure of what it means to rejoice. He says, praise, rejoice in the Lord always. Be glad with God. Be glad with what he's done with you. You might say, hey, Chet. It's hard to be glad 
when you're walking through a child. This church was discouraged. And seemingly, according to verse 6, where he says, be anxious for nothing, it seems like they've got some anxiety. Well, I don't know about you. When I'm discouraged, sometimes it's hard to pick up my Bible. Sometimes it's hard to pray. Sometimes I don't even know what to say. I'm just groaning. But it's in that moment that the direction of Scripture has got to become true in our life. Sometimes we'll get discouraged and we'll call a friend. Why not call your best friend God? Why not dig into the Word and hear what He has to say? Don't forget the direction to rejoice in the Lord in your situation. Purpose to rejoice in the Lord and follow the the direction of Scripture no matter how we feel. You see, Paul, he gives a prescription for inner peace. He gives us a prescription of a peace that passes understanding, and he says this, Rejoice in the Lord. So purpose to praise, no matter where you're at. But take a look at verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer. Purpose to praise and purpose to pray. Let me tell you what praise does. Praise reminds you that God is bigger than your problem. In Peru, Pastor Zach and I were walking back to the house and we looked up into the heavens. And there were so many stars. You can't see those stars in L.A. The light, the light pollution just keeps us from seeing it's just the, the, the plethora of stars that are out there. And when you look up at those stars and you know that God created every one of them in a universe that we can't even find the end to, and you're worried about your problem. When you begin to praise, you begin to realize he's bigger than the problem. When we begin to pray and cast our burdens on him, the Bible says he cares for us. He encourages us to cast our burdens on him because he cares for us. And if we choose to praise in prayer, all of a sudden, by faith, we're going to experience that peace that passes understanding. In fact, I can say this. The cure for discouragement is to rejoice in the Lord through praise and prayer. Amen? Let me give you an example. Let me tell you a story. In your notes, you can write it down at 2 Chronicles chapter 20. King by the name of Jehoshaphat. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. You can read it for yourself later. He's got three kings against his one. He's outnumbered three to one. He gets a little nervous. In fact, the Bible says he runs to the temple and calls all of Israel, well, uh, uh, Judah. We've got to pray. We're outnumbered three to one. He is freaking out. That's what's going on. But there's a guy that happens to be in the church service that particular day, and his name is, um, I'm going to read it for you, Jehaziel. I had to practice it all day. His name is Jehaziel. Let me tell you who he is. He's a son of Asaph. Now, if you, that doesn't sound familiar to you, I want to explain. The sons of Asaph were the Gannons, were the Alexes, the worship leaders of the temple. They were the Andreas. Okay, they were the ones, they were Chesters, they were the people that are up here, they were in charge of leading the worship. Jehoshaphat comes in, we're going to die, oh God, please protect us, please save us. Jehaziel comes in and he goes, Jehoshaphat, what's your problem, dude? This battle belongs to the Lord. Stand back and watch his deliverance. It amazes me the perspective of someone who has spent a lifetime in praise and prayer. 
You've got Jehoshaphat who's freaking out that he's outnumbered three to one. And you've got Jehaziel who says to him, this battle belongs to the Lord. I've been worshiping, praising God my whole life. This ain't nothing for God. Do you know how big God is? You think God can't handle outnumbered three to one? So you know the decision that they made? They put the choir in front of the soldiers. And they went into battle singing, the mercy of the Lord endures forever. Can you imagine being the choir leader? You've never held a sword in your life? The mercy of the Lord endures forever. I mean, just imagine how they sounded. Probably not exactly. No, let me tell you how they sounded. They were singing with everything they had. The mercy of, I mean, their life depended on it. And they were worshiping God. And you know what the Bible says? And the Lord caused them to turn on each other. And the enemy killed themselves. And when they went over the hill, there was the enemy all dead because they killed themselves. And the Bible says they just went and picked their swords and their gold and everything. Thank you, Jesus, and walked out off the scene. You see, rejoice in the Lord is a direction from Scripture. Go back with me to Philippians, if you would, verse 2 of chapter 3. It's safe for you to do this, but beware. Beware. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. Paul doesn't have a problem mincing words, and he doesn't really have a problem describing how he feels. He says, beware of the mutilation. You see, these people that he's referring to, the dogs, they had caused discouragement. They had caused dispute in the church. They were purposed to distort the theology that we are saved by grace and grace alone. They wanted to bring in legalism. Well, you're saved, but you got to get circumcised. And you know why they said, called them the mutilation? Because the Roman world couldn't understand why would you cut the body like that? And they called the Jews the mutilators. So Paul turns it, and this modern day word, turns it on them and says, no, they're the mutilation who come in and say, you got to be circumcised before you can really be saved. you got to follow all the Jewish festivals. You've got to do this and you've got to do that. They wanted to bring in legalism. They wanted to live by a religion and not a relationship. And usually if you're around uh, legalistic people, they're miserable. They're bitter. They're angry. Joy is the furthest thing from their heart and mind. Because everyone must look like them. Everyone must act like them. Everyone must have the same convictions they do. Otherwise, you're just not saved. If you don't look like me, if you don't act like me, well, you're not a Christian. Well... It seems that the legalistic person is comfortable living by rules instead of living by the Spirit. See, living by rules, all you do is read a list. Do this, do this, do this, do this. But if you're living by the Spirit, you actually have to study the Word of God and let the Word of God convict you by the Spirit so that you live the life that God is calling you to live. You know what? Some of you have been saved for like 50 years. I hope to be a Christian like you. I really do. But I'm thankful that God is not convicting me of the things that he's convicting you of because I'm not ready yet. Do you understand what I'm saying? And I've been saved for since I was seven years old. I'm 51. I'm going to be 52 and, oof. Wow, that just hurt me. It's only a couple of days away when I said it. 
God bless you. <laughs> Not really celebrating this year. But anyway, here's the deal. Why would I put my trip on you? You just got saved. And your language is still clearing up. And God's still pulling you out of darkness in the midst of your wherever you are at. But I say to you, I can't believe you said that word. That word. Well, let me tell you something. I had a guy come to my house. I led him to Christ right at my house. He was picking up all of our garbage from the house. So I said, why don't you pray for the very first time? He used more explicatives in his prayer. And at the end of his prayer, I said, dude, I don't know if you can talk to Jesus like that. Now, I don't see any lightning. Like, I'm sure like God will work with you on your language. But I couldn't believe what was coming out of his mouth. But it was like, it's all he knew. He didn't know not to say those words. I'll never forget when my daughter was five years old and she prayed for the devil to get saved. <laughs> Do you know what I did after she prayed that? I can't believe you prayed that prayer. No, I looked at her heart. And I saw that her heart was, if the devil gets saved, then there won't be any more evil in the world, and we can really resolve all of these bad things that are happening. I saw her heart. God looks at our heart. He looks at what's inside, not what is outside. Beware that you don't get all legalistic and start living by the rules. And Paul wasn't afraid to call him out. Because these people had caused division. They had caused the church to be discouraged. They wanted people to be miserable instead of having the joy in the Lord. No wonder Paul says over 10 times, rejoice, 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 be glad, get out of this way because this is what a citizen of heaven looks like. A citizen of heaven is someone who's not miserable. A citizen of heaven is someone who has inexpressible joy. A citizen of heaven is someone who has a peace that passes understanding. It's the product of following the direction Rejoice in the Lord. So Paul sums it up, and here's where we close. Uh-oh, some of you are like, wait a second, you're closing a little bit early tonight. Finally. <laughs> I told you I'd get it. For we are the circumcision. So here's what he says. We're in relationship with God. That's what he's saying who worship God in the Spirit. And Jesus summed that up in John 4. Remember when he was talking to the woman at the well? When speaking to the woman at the well, he said this, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet, the woman says. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. In other words, you're saved by works. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we, we, we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You see, if you're in relationship with God... It doesn't depend on what you do or how many times you go on a mission trip or how many hours you serve here and you get your community hours served for Jesus because it springs from an inexpressible joy in you to give back to God what he has already done for you. You worship in spirit. Look what else he says. He says there in verse 3, you rejoice in Christ Jesus. He saved us. 
No one can take that from you. And he's given us a peace with God that passes understanding. That's why Nehemiah wrote about the children of Israel, the joy of the Lord is my strength. I'm saved. And no matter what comes before me, that's good enough for me. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I'm not going to find my strength in what I have. I'm not going to find my strength in a relationship that could fail. I'm not going to find my relationship in any other thing than the joy of the Lord. And finally, he says, there's no confidence in the flesh. That's for someone who's got a real relationship with the Lord. Because they realize there's nothing I can do to be more righteous before God. Jesus did it all. And because he did it all, I will be a humble servant. I will be sacrificially obedient. Not because I have to. I get to. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I ain't got no problem saying it. Rejoice. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.